Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to be in the Word. Thank you for the, uh, this space that you've, uh, you've blessed us with in order to do so. And, and Father, we're asking that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, that you would speak through your Holy Word. Lord, you've uh, preserved it for your people as a place that we can sort of sit under and receive truth. And we're asking that uh, once more, Lord, that, uh, that you would minister that truth to the deep places of our being. And so bless the word, Lord. Lord, you know each one of us, you know where we're at, you know what's going on uh, the, in the inward parts of who we are. Lord, you know what's ahead of us today and this week. Lord, you know what things are really weighing heavily upon some of us and what joys and excitements are on others. Lord, you know every part of our being and you know each one of us uniquely. And Lord, the thought of that impacts our soul. Where else would we go to sit under? And so, Lord, as you have done again and again and again in the hearts of your people, we ask that you would bless your word this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in and have been in the book of Zechariah. So go ahead and try and start locating that, finding that. Uh, one of the last few books of the Old Testament before you hit that larger book of Matthew that you'll see there. So if you're just sort of flipping through, if you need a Bible, there's some in chairs near you. You can grab it, and we even put the page number up there to make it easy for you. But here we are, we're in the book of Zechariah, and we have come now to the very end of the book. Now, we're not going to finish today, uh, but we have come to the end of the book, the very last message that God gave to Zechariah to give uh, to, the, to the people, and ultimately to you and I. Uh, and that is, today we've come to Zechariah chapter 12, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse uh, starting with chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, is that very final message of Zechariah. Now, he calls it, you can look in verse 1 there, he calls it, in my version, an oracle. In other versions, he uses the word burden or, or something to that effect. And so this is an oracle of the word of the Lord, or the burden of the word of the Lord. And it's one of two of these burdens that God laid upon the heart of Zechariah late in his ministry. And so Zechariah ministered, we think, for about a period of about 50 years. And early on in his ministry, his message was primarily to the people about the temple and their discouragement and, you know, Jerusalem's not really taken off and uh, coming out of exile, all those things. And he, he had messages to encourage them. But about 50 years have gone by, and here he is now, again, delivering the word that God has given him. And he uses it, in, he, he labels it an oracle. The first of those was in, began in chapter 9, chapter 9, 10, and 11, the first of those messages. And that was designed uh, to communicate, here's what we entitled the sermon, the full and the final restoration for the nation of Israel. It was a message designed to communicate to Israel, this is where we're going. We're going to end up over here at some point in time, and as he had to kind of build the framework to get to that point, that's what chapters 9, 10, and 11 were about. Here now, he's concerned with the purifying of the nation of Israel. 
in those previous chapters I just mentioned, 9 and 11, he dealt with the purifying or the judgment of the surrounding Gentile nations. Now he's going to deal with the purifying of the nation of Israel, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then the establishment of God's glorious kingdom. We call that the millennial kingdom. And all of that's going to be covered now in these final three chapters. If you're comparing the first burden to the second, the first burden looked at the rejection of God's king, the Messiah, and this second burden now deals with the establishment of this king in his kingdom. And so let's jump into it, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, Now the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding nations. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place." Now, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is how often the phrase on that day is used. First here in those six or eight verses that I just read to you, but throughout these next three chapters. And so you can start peeking down there and looking at it. In chapter 12, we see that phrase on that day in verses 3 and 4, verse 6, verse 8 and 9. Are you looking? I don't see you looking. Verse 11. Chapter 13, it's in verses 1, 2, and 4. And then in chapter 14, the phrase on that day is in verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 13, verse 20, and verse 21. All right? When it's repeated that often in a message, it's a pretty good indicator what the theme of the message is. And so the theme of this message is on that day. Now, the day that we are referring to is what other places in the scripture refers to as the day of the Lord. So this is a message about the day of the Lord. That message can be found throughout the Old Testament prophets and even in the New Testament. Isaiah 2, 12, Isaiah 13, 6, Ezekiel 13, 5, Joel 1, 15, Joel 2, Joel 2 again, Joel 3, Amos 5, Obadiah 15, Zephaniah 1, Zechariah 14, and Malachi chapter 4. Again and again and again and again, the prophets, as they were delivering their message, many of them are talking about this time right here in light of this time over here, the day of the Lord. And so that's what this particular message is going to be all about, the day of the Lord. Now, we've defined that day because I just read to you. It was in Joel. It was in Amos. It was in Obadiah. It was in Zephaniah. We finished studying all those books throughout this summer. And so that day has been defined a number of times as we've been gathering together. The day of the Lord, I have defined it this way. Other people have. I've stolen it. But this way, it is a day of God's special intervention in the affairs of men. Got it? 
God's special intervention in the affairs of men. We use the term like divine intervention. That's what the day of the Lord ultimately refers to. Is God at work at all times in all things? Absolutely. But there are times where there is a special intervention of God in the affairs of men. And here in Zechariah chapter 12 to verse 14, we're going to look at that final special intervention of God in the affairs of men. Second thing we discovered about the day of the Lord is it's not a one-day period of time, a 24-hour period of time. I guess in some cases it can be. But typically it's referring to a period of time in which God specially intervenes. And so here, as we're talking about the day of the Lord, we are talking about those days immediately preceding, and you'll see as we go, immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. You remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, I will come again. Jesus promised he would return. And we call that the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here, it's referred to as the day of the Lord. Chapter 12 begins then. And it begins with God first identifying who he is. People can get up, they can say all kinds of stuff. You ever been in one of those kind of seminars or meetings, and you're like, who is this guy? And they're like, well, he's the president of such and such. Oh, okay, let me listen in. Who's this guy? Well, he's the, he's the janitor, you know, he just popped up. Oh, why am I listening to this guy? All right, I assume the other fellow knows what he's talking about. And so he begins by establishing who's talking. Well, here's who's talking. It begins in verse 1, thus declares the Lord. Who am I? I'm the one that stretched out the heavens. I'm the one that founded the earth. I'm the one that formed the spirit of man within him. He begins, notice, at the beginning. It goes all the way back to creation. And I stretched out the heavens. I founded the earth. I formed the spirit of man. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He begins at the beginning. As he is about to talk about the end, he goes all the way back to the beginning to establish that this one has something worth listening to and someone whom you can trust. It's a reminder to us that he is in control it's a reminder to us that he is completely able to accomplish the things that he's about to say he's going to accomplish. And so with that fresh reminder, he, tells, he begins telling us of the events of the coming day. We see that in verse 2. He says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Well, how are you going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering? I'm the one that founded the heavens and formed the earth and put the spirit inside of man. Oh, okay. He says, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The seas of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. First point that I want to make about this, notice that in the end, the day of the Lord, it's presupposed that Jerusalem is in existence. Now, for you and I, that may not mean anything. Of course. I've been to Jerusalem. Of course it's in existence. Yeah, well, if you lived before 1950, this would have been shocking words. Because for a period of about 1,900 years, the Jews were out of the land, and the city of Jerusalem, which was possessed, is now possessed by the Jews, didn't even, wasn't even uh, existent. And so for those reading it many, many, many years ago, they would have looked at this and been like, I don't know. As a matter of fact, 
many Bible commentaries written before 1948 will say, yeah, this can't be literal because, you know, there is no such thing as Israel anymore. So Jerusalem must stand for something else. Maybe it stands for this or maybe it stands for that. But it's so cool. When you read some of these old Bible commentators, guys that wrote in like the 1900s and the 1800s, there's a few of them that'll say, like, I don't know how it's going to happen, but Jerusalem has to be reborn. Israel has to be reborn. The people have to return to the land. And others are like, oh, you're so cute. You believe in like literal stuff like that. You're so cute. And they're like, we'll see. We'll be dead, but we'll see. You know, it's going to happen. And it did. Read uh, a great Bible commentator is Sir Walter Anderson. Robert Anderson? Robert? He really has impacted me. <laughs> I don't even know his name. Um, but he's one of those guys that really took that sort of that courageous stand and said, look, this is what the Bible says. And so this is what it must mean. And then out of nowhere, think about it, 1948. That's just following World War II, when a third of all Jewish people on the earth were exterminated from the earth. How could they possibly rebirth a nation three years after that? I think it's God's hand on them. That's how he, it happened. And so they, they go back into the land. And so Jerusalem noticed that it's presupposed its existence. That's one important point here. Now, as we go on to verse 2, notice he says, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. The, the idea there is it's like a, it's a cup of alcohol, that when you drink that intoxicant, it sort of it makes you act. I'm not going to try and be a drunk up here. It, it makes you act funny. You walk a little bit different. Maybe you do things you might not have done before having drunk that intoxicant or say things that you wouldn't have done before. And so that idea then of this uh, cup of staggering, it's going to be a Jerusalem will be this cup of staggering to the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations will find themselves doing things in response to Jerusalem that they might not have done otherwise had they not drank this particular intoxicant. And it speaks of this innate desire of those surrounding nations to control Jerusalem, to control Israel, to destroy the Jews as the rightful inhabitants of the land. If you follow Middle Eastern affairs at all, contemporary Middle Eastern affairs, this is not a hard thing for us to imagine, because that's exactly what the surrounding nations are seeking to do with the land of Israel. They have this innate desire. Take a look, if, I don't know how you're gonna do this, but go into one of the surrounding nations, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt even, go into a little kid's classroom there where they put a, a map of the region up on the, up on the, the, the blackboard there, or whatever it might be, and what you'll see is, well, there's Jordan, and there's Syria, and there's Lebanon, and there's just a blank area of land. They won't even label it Israel because of their contempt for the nation of Israel. When Israel became a nation, May 14, 1948, they were granted their independence. Two nations on the earth recognized them as nations. Harry Truman was one of them against the United States, against the advice of his advisors. It's just going to cause trouble. But Harry Truman had this sense of this belief of, I, this is what God would have me to do. And he did it against the advice of his counselors. But very few other nations, one other nation, I forget which one, England, I think it was. All other nations, nope, not interested in that. That's a, that's a fire uh, keg or a powder keg there. I'm not getting involved. And those nations surrounding them determined, that's it. we got to drive them now into the sea. 
and five surrounding nations attacked the nation of Israel in 1948, went to war, and their, their plan was to push the people into the sea and wipe them from the planet. And they lost, miraculously. And they tried again in 67, they tried again in 73, and they've lost, miraculously. God provided for them. It still amazes me, if you fly on, uh, on in particular, I fly on Qatar Airways sometimes. And Qatar Airways, you know, they have the long flights and they, they put the map and you're only 11 hours away from where you're going. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to make it, you know, or whatever. And they put the map and it shows you a little picture of where the plane is. You've, you've been there, you've seen those. They won't label the map with the nation of Israel. All the other nations are labeled, but not Israel. How is a nation, Israel is about the size of New Jersey relatively small landmass. How is it that a nation the size of New Jersey can be at the center of global politics decade after decade after decade? And I think the answer is it's spiritual. And the Lord says here that he is going to stir up the surrounding nations so that they come out against Jerusalem. Now, if you notice verse 2, it speaks of a siege against Jerusalem as the nations come against it or against Israel. But as has been the case millennia after millennia after millennia, the Lord will intervene on behalf of his people and on Jerusalem. And he says there that Jerusalem will be as a heavy stone for all the peoples. Doesn't make any sense from a human perspective, but despite that fact, all the nations of the earth, despite the fact that all the nations of the earth will gather against Jerusalem, Jerusalem will end up being the one that is victorious. Jerusalem will again prove to be, as it has been through the centuries, this heavy stone that these surrounding nations just can't lift, this heavy stone that they can't solve, this problem, this people that can't be conquered. And those that come against Jerusalem will be destroyed, remember that phrase, on that day. Therefore, the people of the world, they'll be perplexed what to do with Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, well, we'll all unite and we'll go to war against them. Verse 3, on that day I'll make Jerusalem that heavy stone. All who lift it will, will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. This will be, if you will, the last act of man, mankind, uh, leading up to that day, on that day. You remember General Douglas MacArthur, he was the World War II general. He was said to have declared this, men since the beginning of time have sought peace, he said, but war is man's chief legacy. All we do is fight. All over the world there are wars, again and again and again. And I think it's worth noting that the final act of these Gentile world powers will be warfare once again as the world assembles for this final deadly onslaught against the nation of Israel. More commonly, this is what we refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. Heard of Armageddon, I'm, I'm sure? Bruce Willis movie? It did not accurately depict what's going to happen in the last days. I think he's blowing up an asteroid or something as an oil driller. That's not Armageddon. But it's a term that we use a lot. And the Battle of Armageddon is spoken of in our scriptures, and what Zechariah doesn't use the term, but that's what he's describing, as all of these nations will come to con they'll, uh, converge on Israel to go to war against Israel. 
He's referring to this battle of Armageddon. Revelation chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 19 speak of it and use that particular term. And it's on that day that the Lord will intervene in a special and a unique way on behalf of his people. We see one such intervention. Look at verse 4 of our, our text. He says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic, and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. You see how God is intervening in a special way on behalf of his people? Now we know that this so-called battle, the battle of Armageddon, we know that it won't be much of a battle. Because when God begins to intervene on behalf of his people, what can man do, even all of the men of all of the nations that are going to gather what can they do in response to that? Zechariah, he goes on, look at verse 5. It says, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in, inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Verse 7 goes on. He says, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So a few things we learn. Verse 8, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will be protected and strengthened. Verse 9, that the invading Gentile nations will be destroyed. I think it's interesting. We're told in verse 7 that the Lord's going to give victory to the outlying regions first and then to Jerusalem. So to the cities and villages outside of the city of Jerusalem. And then he goes on to tell us, and it seems like he's concerned that the inhabitants outside of Jerusalem in Israel are going to feel left out. And so he's going to let them have victory first uh, before the inhabitants of the holy city. And again, that's uh, verse 7, the end there. He says that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. He says in verse 8 that the feeblest among them, on that day will be like David. Remember David, King David, the mighty warrior David? He says that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David. Renowned for his fighting ability, renowned for his courage, renowned for his success. Even the very feeblest amongst them will be uh, the same there. And then he says as far as the house of David, this is again in verse 8, the house of David would be referring to like the royal family. He says that the house of David will be compared in might to God himself. And so God is certainly going before them and empowering them. And as I said earlier, as we compare these things that we are reading about here in Zechariah with what is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 19, what we're able to do is piece together that as this battle as it begins to unfold, there seems to be a moment in time when Israel's not going to make it. 
You got millions of people that are gathered against them in the plains of Megiddo. That's why it's called the Battle of Armageddon, Megiddo. As they're coming against them, it seems like Israel's not going to make it. And it's to that that the Lord returns. I want to read an extended portion from Revelation 19. I think we'll put it up on the screen. It says this. This is the return of Jesus Christ to the plains of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon. He said, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on that horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, they were following him also on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords." Verse 17 goes on, he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Certainly a troubling material, wouldn't you agree? The, the point there at the end is this battle and how many people will have died in this particular battle that the birds are going to come and eat the flesh of their, their dead bodies as they lay there in those fields. And so I said, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, but it's not much of a battle at all when the Lord appears. And when all seemed lost for Israel, their king, the king of kings as he's referred to elsewhere, is going to appear with the armies of heaven following after him and he will defeat their enemies. And it's in that moment, and this is very important, it's in that moment when the Lord appears and the armies of Israel are fearing that we're not going to make it, they're going to destroy us. I, I have this sort of this picture that on one side are the enemy armies, then there's Israel, and behind them is the Lord. And the enemy, or uh, Israel, they look and they see on the faces of their enemies and they sort of like glance back. What are they looking at? And what they're looking at is the Lord. And when they look at the Lord in that instance, this is what they see. This is what they come to notice. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, On me, whom they have pierced, they will mourn for me, or him, as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so as they glance at the the Lord as he returns in his glory, we know that the Lord will continue to bear the marks of when he was crucified. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, and one of those disciples was Thomas? There were others with him, but Thomas hadn't been with the other ones before. And the other one's like, we've seen the Lord. He came back from the dead. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, unless I can put my hand, my finger, in the hole of his hands there where he was crucified and in his side, I won't believe. 
Well, Jesus appears a second time to the group, and this time Thomas is with them. And he says, Thomas, put your hand right here. He says, Thomas, don't doubt, but believe. He will continue to bear in himself the marks of his crucifixion, even as he is the glorified one. And so as he is returning, they'll look back, I'm assuming, they'll look back, they'll see him, and they will see the one that had been pierced, and they will realize we're the ones that did it. We're the ones that rejected him previously. This is the instance that Paul speaks of in the book of Romans. And you remember in the book of Romans from chapter 9 through chapter 11, Paul has this little aside where he talks about God's plan for the Jewish people. Has God rejected the Jewish people? Or is he done with the Jewish people? Has he moved on from them to the church? Are they his people now? And all of this. And in there he begins to explain, no, God hasn't rejected the Jewish people. And he explains, you can read it for yourself. And he concludes to almost toward the end of chapter 11. And he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He says, all Israel will be saved. Now, all Israel is not going to be saved because they're from Israel. All Israel will be saved because he has poured out his spirit on Israel to cause them to cry out to him for his mercy. Are you with me? That's the point that Zechariah is making as they look back and they see him. So again, he says, I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and, for, and pleas for mercy. God will do a work in the heart of his people so that in that heart they will begin to cry out to God, God, we need you. God, we have sinned against you. We need your mercy. We need your grace. He says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over the loss of their firstborn. As they look on him, they come to realize, the one who had come to rescue them, they come to realize that this hero of theirs is actually the one that they had previously rejected. Notice what it says there. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will recognize the role that they played. They will come to understand immediately that this one, this glorious one from heaven, is their Messiah. But at the same time, this glorious one from heaven is the Jesus whom they previously and violently had rejected on the cross. He is the one that they pierced. And you remember, they dropped the crown of thorns upon his head. And so his brow was pierced. You remember both of his hands and his feet, that they were pierced with that nine-inch nail to hold him to the cross. You remember, uh, to check and make sure he was dying, or he had died, that the Roman soldier shoved that spear into his side to see if he was still alive. And the reality is that he had died. John 19 says that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. This is the one that was pierced. And if there's any doubt, well, I don't know. Is that really Jesus that we're talking about? If there's any doubt, the Apostle John makes it very clear because following up his comments that you just read there about a soldier piercing his side, this is what he said. He said, he who saw it, meaning himself, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones would be broken. 
Now, typically what that means is the soldiers, they would break the legs of the person being crucified because then that person would be unable to just sort of push themselves up a little to catch a deep breath. And then they'd fall back down. But you break their legs, they don't have the strength to do that, and pretty soon they're going to suffocate. That's how you die on crucifixion. You suffocate uh, up there as you're unable to take a deep breath as the weight of your body is pulled down um, by gravity. And so they would break the legs. Now they come to Jesus, and he's already dead. And so they don't break his legs to fulfill the scripture. Not one of his bones would be broken. And instead, the soldier puts a spear in his side. You know, if he jumps or something like that, oh, I guess he's still alive. And Jesus doesn't jump. He's dead. He had already given up his spirit. And look at verse 37 of that John passage. And he says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So again, if there's any doubt, like, is that really who Zechariah is talking about? John confirms it for us. They will look on him whom they have pierced. That word look in verse 10 is an important word. It's a word that doesn't just mean to catch a glance or look over. Oh, yeah, how about that? It's a word which means to carefully contemplate. It means to behold something with thoughtfulness or to see something and then to carefully consider that something. And that's what the the people of Israel will do in that day or on that day. They will see the one they have pierced and they will recognize they're the ones that crucified their Messiah that rejected him violently and had him killed. Last week we learned that the children of Israel would reject their good shepherd and accept a false and worthless shepherd. Here now, in an instant, as they look over their shoulder and they see him coming in the clouds, they will turn from the worthless shepherd, and remember we referred to him as the Antichrist, and they will embrace the one that they had previously rejected. In an instant, there will be this overwhelming sense of their own sin. Just in an instant, God did it. I don't know if you've ever been there in your life. I've been there in my life. And it's not like some major thing that people would, you know, oh my gosh, the news, you know, this kind of thing. It's just this sense of being in the holy presence of God and recognizing how far short you fall of that holy God. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's, it's not fun. But amazingly, at the same time where he's the holy one and you're the unholy one, it's mingled with this sense of I'm welcome in his presence. And that's what is going on here with the children of Israel. They recognize their wickedness, their sin, the horrible thing that they had done to their Messiah. And yet at the same time, there's this movement in them to cry to that Messiah for his mercy and his grace instead of to run from that one that they had wronged. It says they will weep, as one weeps for an only child or their firstborn that they had lost. And so while it's true that the Jews weren't alone in the rejection and the execution of the Lord Jesus, the Romans were involved in the process, certainly, and they're the ones that actually did it, physically did it, The reality is, though, they do bear significant responsibility for the way in which things played out. And again, in an instant, the the weight of that responsibility, the weight of that guilt will come upon them. They'll know that Jesus is indeed the Holy One sent from God. Now, here's one thing I want you to notice. Look how chapter 12, verse 1 begins. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord. All right, so who's speaking? The Lord, God. 
Then you go down to verse 10, and it says there, And I will pour out on the house of David, the heavens, through the spirit of grace, please for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced. Who's speaking? God. Who was pierced? Jesus. Priora IA, whatever that Latin phrase is. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And they will not only know that Jesus is the Holy One sent from God, they will discover that he is God himself. God in the flesh via the incarnation. What a day. What a day this will be for God's ancient people. They will come to know that the one whom they rejected is indeed the Messiah. It'll be a day that begins with great mourning, but because of God's grace, and it will be a day where that sorrow is turned to joy. And doesn't that describe the experience of the cross of Jesus Christ perfectly? A day of great mourning, a day of great sorrow, but a day of great victory that causes much joy. And for those of us here that are believers in Jesus Christ, that's been our experience. We've come into the presence of God. He's revealed how far short we fall of his standard for our lives. He's revealed how holy he is and how unholy we are, not just in our actions, but even the inclination of our heart, how we just don't measure up to the holy standard of God. And rather than that causing us to run away, the Holy Spirit says, no, get closer. Go more, go more, go more. So that his mercy and his grace can be poured out on us. There can be a cleansing. There can be a washing that is over us. He says in verse 11, that day, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. Now, Hadad Rahman is not actually a person. It's a place. It's located in those plains there of Megiddo. And it was the location where King Josiah of Israel was killed. One of the, the most successful of all kings of Israel instituted all sorts of reforms in Israel, moral reforms in Israel, was loved by the people of Israel, and he died in battle, Judah actually, and he died in battle there in that particular plain. And there was great mourning. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And that's what it's referring to when it says the morning of that day will be like the morning of the, the day previous. He says in verse 12, the land shall mourn, each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. In saying this, every part of Israeli society is going to mourn. They're all mentioned there. And they will mourn as they realize that they were the ones that pierced the very one who had come to save them. It talks about the family of the house of David. That's the royal family of Israel. It talks about the, ham the family of the house of Nathan. Nathan, the prophet, the great prophet, likened to people like Samuel and Elijah. And so that speaks of the prophets will mourn. The family of the house of Levi. Levi was the family of the priest. They will mourn. The Shimeites, the Shimeites were the teachers of the law. They shall mourn. And then he throws it all together, verse 14, and all the families that are left shall mourn. They will see their Messiah. There'll be this great corporate repentance, as Paul said, 
all Israel shall be saved on that day, the return of Christ. Now, here's a point that I want to make, and we're coming to an end this morning. How about a, a, a big all? Oh, we're having so much fun. All right, thank you. Uh, if you notice in verse 12, I think it's five times, it says by itself, house of David by itself, house of Nathan by itself, and so on. And I think it's five times where it refers to the wives of those individuals, it says by themselves. And so it keeps reusing the phrase by itself and by themselves. And I think that's an incredibly important reminder to us that true confession, true repentance, can only take place in a one-on-one -on -one interaction with God. The high priest couldn't repent on behalf of these people. The teachers of the law couldn't do so. The members of the royal family couldn't do so. Neither could the prophets. Each person by themselves had to pull aside and have their time with God. And the reason why it's so important for us to point that out, because it's the exact same thing for every one of us in this room today, that each one of us in this room, we will be made right with God, not because of what another has done on our behalf. And what I mean by that is this, your husband or your wife can't repent on your behalf or the behalf of the family. Your mom or your dad can't do it. You can't do it on behalf of your mom and dad. Your pastor or your priest can't do it. You alone must go to God, acknowledge your need, and that he alone can meet that need. And I think an extremely important question for every one of us in this room to consider this morning is, have you ever done that? That you alone going into God's presence and getting right with God, have you ever done that? Because that is the only place where God can and will meet out his grace and his mercy to you. And it's my hope, my sincere hope, that everyone in this room understands that. Now, we've been talking a lot about the day of the Lord. God's word, as I pointed out in the beginning, it, it talks a lot about that day in various places. Here's a couple of things it says about it, and I, it will make the point, I think. The prophet Zeph Zephaniah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah, he said that the great day of the Lord is near and it is hastening fast. Paul wrote in the book of 1 Thessalonians this, he said, referring to the day of the Lord, he says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief in the night. And so again, are you ready for that day? I'll get ready. Be careful. Scripture says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's hastening, as it said in that, that first verse, it's hastening fast and coming near. Isaiah the prophet, he wrote this, Surely the Son has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and people walked by? I can't believe how, like, terribly rude and hateful and mean-spirited. But people walked by as he's dying on the cross, and they mocked him from down on the ground. You who saved others, save yourselves. Come on down, prove to us you're the Messiah, and then we'll believe in you. They mocked him. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But uh, Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, that's a gift of God. And it's extended. Have you taken that gift? Have you received it? Have you applied it to your own life? My prayer today is that you will. And I'm going to end with one more verse in chapter 13. It's the first verse of the chapter. It says, On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. He describes here a fountain. A fountain on that day that will bring cleansing. Here's how the prophet Ezekiel described the same thing. He said, I will take from you the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. Remember we talked about that last week? God bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, soft, able to receive, able to feel again. And I will pour my spirit, uh, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Notice the order of things. The repentance, as they looked on God in, in truth, followed by the cleansing. God moved in their hearts to repent. He brings about a cleansing. Maybe this morning you're here, and you hear these words about God's forgiveness. You hear these words about God's cleansing. Maybe you hear them and you think, you know what? That's just a little bit too, too good to be true. It's not. But maybe that's where you're at right now. And you're thinking, that's just too good to be true. Maybe you're thinking, look, I, I really like what I hear. But I just don't think I can trust that that can truly be. And I've talked to plenty of people over the years that that's their hang up. You don't know my life. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know what I've did, what I've done. Well, if it sounds, if that sounds a lot like where you're at right now, let me just draw out this, this key point here. Look at verse 24. I'm going to look at all the verses again, but notice this. Every one of the, these phrases I'm going to share with you, they begin with, I will, and it's God speaking. He says, I will take you from the nations in verse 24. In verse 25, he says, and I, will, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will cleanse you. In verse 26, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Verse 26, he talks about there that he will remove their heart of stone and he will replace it, as he says there, with the heart of flesh. In verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then finally, in verse 29, he says, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I hope we all notice that today, that he's the one doing all the work. And ours is to simply receive. And if that's never been your experience, I do hope today that you will come to the, to the place of receiving the gift of salvation that is offered to you freely because of the work of God's Son. Amen, everyone?
Let's pray. Father, we, we, we rejoice in that. Lord, a lot of us in here have been Christians for a long time. And that message about the work that you do and our righteousness because of what Christ has done, it can become maybe uh, less impactful. It just becomes sort of old news. Yeah, I've heard that before. But Lord, I pray today, by your grace, that you would touch our hearts afresh once more. That the wonder of our salvation, that the, the wonder of a holy God loving and acting on behalf of an unholy people would just enlarge our hearts, causing them to swell in the reality of that wonderful fact, Lord. And, I, and again, for those that don't yet know you, Lord, it's by your grace. Lord, would you impress that on their hearts today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.